0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.
1: I want to welcome Eric Clements to Knowledge at Wharton. He's a Wharton professor of operations, information, and decisions, and he's here to share some of his ideas about business transformation, specifically digital transformation, so thanks for joining us today.: My pleasure. Um, what is digital transformation? Is it different than regular business transformation?
0: Great, great question. We've been transforming business uh, for centuries. I mean, Wharton has been transforming business since the 1880s. You know The first transformation, somebody invents railroads and telegraphs and now there's an advantage to economies of scale because you can manage lots of guys. But you need to learn how to manage. So the first business transformation uh, that Wharton is associated with is the training of managers for companies with more than one location. That's a big deal. The invention of credit, yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, digital transformation – is probably about as big a deal as the invention of credit. It changes the way we do everything. Uh, it's not to say there haven't been digital transformations before. Database management transformed the way political campaigns are run, transformed the way direct marketing is done. Uh, communications networks and um, high-velocity, high-frequency trading change the securities industry, but those are localized. Uh, What makes today's modern digital transformation different is that it's almost all pervasive. In other words, it's not transforming a part of the business. It's transforming the structure and the strategy of the entire business.
1: What's what's the most important thing for companies to think about once they realize they're not digitally transformed enough and they want to do it?
0: Okay, First thing, big thing, is that the meaning of good enough is different now. So Budweiser was good enough. Miller and Coors were good enough for decades uh, because beer was sold principally by, uh, by advertising. The really profitable stuff now in beer or snack foods is is niche market, which used to be too small for a company even to worry about. Niche market beer is now 15 to 20 percent of the market, and more than 15 to 20 percent of the profit. And suddenly, being Budweiser doesn't look nearly as, as good as it did five years ago. So I think that's probably the first thing to realize. Is that the meaning of good enough has changed? Uh, another
1: thing uh, is that we've had some digital revolutions already. You, you mentioned that they were they tended to be um, confined to a, a certain part of the business. But wasn't the internet creation of the internet a big explosive development? And uh, are you saying that this is this is sort of rivaling that kind of a?
0: development? No, not exactly. I think what I'm saying is this is an outgrowth of that. You know, the internet was around uh, for years. ARPANET was around since the 70s. But none of us knew really how to exploit it. So again, um, the change in the way airlines sell tickets, the almost total elimination of travel agencies. That's a transformation that was certainly enabled by the internet. Uh, My favorite, I don't want to stick with beer, but uh, beer is one of the industries I started studying first. So a lot of my my examples are beer. You would not think of beer as an industry that was either digital or about to be digitally transformed. But uh, for instance, uh, in Wayne, there's a shop called The Beer Yard. Probably 10 years ago, maybe 90 percent of the business was within five miles, and that business was all uh, Bud, Miller, Coors, Bud Light, low cost, very low margin, very competitive. And um, the owner of the shop, a guy named Matt Geyer, created one of the best websites for a beer store anywhere on the planet. And customers find him. He doesn't advertise. I've never seen an ad. But customers now know what he has, and some of it is impossible to find anywhere else. So at this point, um, a lot of the business is out of state. It's still legal. It doesn't ship. Guys come and get it. And probably two-thirds is out of county. So what happens is if you really want to buy a a case of, uh, oh, I don't know, Deus or prestige de nuit, spectacular Belgian beer, $420 a case. You're buying it because you're the best man at your friend's wedding. No place else you're going to find it. And what he's done is he's transformed through the net the way he makes his product available. Now, that's not transformed by the net, but it's transformed through the net.
1: So so how do you start the process of digital transformation?
0: You know, that's the hardest thing I've I've ever had to do for a client, because I can't say, where are you stupid? Where are you missing the boat? Where are you archaic? But I can say, what are the things that everybody else knows? What are the things you you wouldn't even think to tell me? What are the real constraints? And um, That can be very interesting. I remember working for the – basically a a committee reporting to the chairman of of an insurance company. And I remember the two things I was told. One is insurance products have to be really simple because they're boring. And insurance products have to be simple because they're sold by agents who are not very bright. And you'll always need agents. Simple products always need agents. In other words, the one thing everybody knew but me – was you couldn't change either distribution or product. That's really very funny. And I started designing in my head on the fly alternative products and alternative distribution systems. And suddenly they knew they were out of date. They knew there was going to be something like, they didn't know it was going to be the gecko. But suddenly they knew somebody was going to be competing with them online. So it's it's very difficult to take a team that's been remarkably good at something for twenty five years and expect them to find it without help.
1: So for a leader who who gets that and they want to push that change through their organization, is there a blueprint for doing that? Is there a way to think about it? What does that
0: look like? You know, I've I've done that a couple of times. I haven't done that in in a, in a couple of years. Uh, But I've done it for banks. I've done it for uh, four-star generals. Uh, I've done it for heads of of the travel industry. And the idea is to explore all of the things that you are sure are right and think about which of them would be transformative if they were wrong. So you can't tell somebody what's going to happen but you can help somebody discover really smart people who know much more than you about their industry. But you can help them discover vulnerabilities or changes. I mean, one example that was interesting to me: I did something for the uh, heads of, of uh, a number of travel companies, and we tried to think of things that would destroy air travel for a while. And you know, beam me up, Scotty wasn't on on the horizon, but. Uh, terrible fear of flying, enhanced security problems were predictable. So one of the things that we came up with, we didn't write this for obvious reasons, but one of the things we came up with is hijacking a wide-bodied aircraft on a transcontinental flight where the security isn't nearly as tight as going to, to Britain and then crashing it into a building. You know, We didn't pick a year. We didn't pick a building. But we talked about the things that could profoundly alter uh, an entire industry. Running these for insurance, running these for banking, running these for the board of the London Stock Exchange were really fascinating experiences.
1: So you've got to think hard about where you might be vulnerable and kind of see around corners and over the horizon or at least try
0: your best to do that? Shell oil was – the best in the world for a while and doing exactly this. But the blueprint for doing it isn't to say, let's get all wild and crazy. The blueprint, for instance, when we did this for the uh, London Stock Exchange in the late 80s, the question was, why would somebody want to trade off exchange? Not what happens if they do. Why would somebody want to? And then you can get to what would happen. If if they did, and the idea of high velocity, high frequency trading, to capture a tenth, of uh, half a cent, things much much smaller, uh, bid and ask margins much less than the eighths we used to deal with, uh, became really uh, something we could focus on. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's helpful or too too arcane.
1: What are some examples of companies that have done digital transformation very well.
0: Okay. So the first example is one that did it largely in-house. Shortly before deregulation, like days before the airline industry was formally deregulated, the head of marketing, a Wharton grad, a guy named Robert Crandall, Bob Crandall, called a team meeting, a town meeting of the entire staff at American... And he said, I don't know the first thing about selling or operating in a deregulated environment. It's dead silence. And then he said, but let's figure it out together. We will know before anybody else. And American has been the best digitally managed firm long before the internet. Uh, They had customer relationship management, frequent flyer programs first. They had an affinity card. They had um, a differential pricing, a constantly varied real-time repricing algorithms. So, and, and they're now the largest airline in the free world. So it, it's, it's – well, let me back off from that. There are so many different ways to measure largest. They're a very large, very successful airline. They went from two or three gates in Philly to half of Philly when they acquired USAIR. Air. They did a digital transformation that predated – the the net. Capital One uh, was run essentially by officers who got the great idea when they were consultants, not when they were with the bank. And they came up with a, a transformation of their strategy. Everybody wanted to get marketing costs down as low as possible. Everybody wanted economies of scale. So Citibank went national, huge, economy of scale on everything. Capital One decided that in a digital age they could find the most profitable customers on the planet, and they did. Their perfect customer is a um, it's called a high volume high high balance revolver. It's a guy with five or ten thousand dollars on his card, never pays it off quite completely. so you get finance charges from him that are maybe make him 150 times more profitable than average. Capital One found various ways, some of them online, some of them not, to get the exact customers they wanted. And they went from a top 30 credit card issuer to a top 5 credit card issuer almost immediately. They went from somebody you never heard of to what's in your wallet.
1: And they were able to do that because of a digital transformation? The
0: digital transformation they had was strategy, digital strategy. So one of the things they did was they introduced a a screening mechanism. They offered you a balance transfer product. It was somewhat inconvenient to use. The only guys who were willing to put the time in to do the balance transfer just to get a lower interest rate – were the guys who had high outstanding balances. Otherwise, why would you care what your interest rate is? So they developed a very simple screening mechanism. So
1: performing less good customer service
0: we, Nigel, somehow. Nigel and I had a joke about this. We never did this. But one of the things we were going to do, if somebody became really unprofitable, you know, if, if somebody graduated, paid off his med school debts and is now a – a, a, a cardio surgeon, you know, a thoracic surgeon—that's not somebody with an outstanding balance anymore. So we joked that we would make an error. You would call to have it fixed. We would play a message that said, um, "All of our agents are currently serving customers far more important than you are," <laughs> and it just got more and more offensive. Until you were finally told, we may never get around to you. If you just want to cancel your card, hang up and it will be done automatically. And then we played the most obnoxious music you can imagine. Now, we never did this. But but in fact, differential service to attract guys you want uh, is a complicated thing. Capital One did that better than anybody else. They did profitability analysis before anybody else understood it. They developed uh, data mining techniques to figure out who was about to go broke uh, or who should be cross-sold a new product or who should be offered a car loan. So they did spectacular transformation of strategy and yet their social network was a bunch of guys driving between – they had two headquarters, one in in southern Virginia around Richmond and the other around D.C. And twice a week, everybody would get into two cars, six guys – And they'd have a half a board meeting. They'd get halfway to Richmond. Everybody would get out of the cars, rearrange, and drive the rest of the way to Richmond. So that's social network via automobile. No one else measures social network speed in terms of miles per gallon. So that was a transformation of strategy but not really a transformation of structure.
1: So what does a transformation of
0: structure look like? that's complicated um so the most obvious example is the the speed of communication the speed of interaction profoundly affects the amount of independence you want your agents or your subsidiaries to have you know think of benjamin franklin founder of the university in paris trying to get the french to support the the colonies in the war against britain and if he wrote a memo, put it in a, in a, on a horse, and the rider took it to the coast, put it on a ship, it could be three months before he got a response. So he was supposed to do whatever he thought was best. Uh, if you take a look at what an ambassador to, the, to Britain or France does now, he's on a very, very short leash because communications are really nearly perfect. So the ability to manage from afar – It's very different, and there are areas in which you want central control. Big data is so huge, you don't readily move it. So there are other areas where you want to leave control in the the hands of the local decision makers. And the balance between what to decide locally and what to decide globally is probably the most rapidly changing part of the structure of the firm. That's where the digital transformation of structure comes from.
1: If you're the CEO of a company, how should you be thinking about digital transformation and what is it that you probably don't realize about digital transformation?
0: I think there are two pieces to that. And one piece comes back to the structure of the firm, the the example we used with Volkswagen, the example of uh, – Uh, BP's Deepwater Horizon and that piece has to do with understanding how your employees interact. The digital, the millennials um, know they're not going to be at your firm for 30 years. But their posse, the guys they went to Wharton or Brown or Harvard or Yale with, those are their real allies. Those are the guys they're going to interact with and the guys in the firm with similar um, uh, reward structures. Are going to hang together as well. So, you're going to deal with social networks within the firm and across firms you've never seen before. And you'll get phenomena out, you'll get behaviors out that you've never seen before. Like, uh, you asked me, I'm 24 years old, you want me to write a proposal uh, for a major investment bank. And I contact my friends from undergraduate days, one of whom's at McKinsey. Another is at BCG, I'm at a third firm and we designed the same proposal. All three firms put in a nearly identical proposal which never would have happened before. So the idea of invisible social networks is something that the CEO has to understand and the idea of meaningful incentives so that I do what's good for for the firm, not what's good for, for my posse is something that the firm absolutely has to get right. Uh, One of my friends used to use what he called the law of the wallet. You tell me how you pay them and I'll tell you what they really do when you're not watching them. One thing the CEO has to understand is there are entirely new invisible structures within the firm. And to get those structures to do what he wants – Rewards have to be meaningful. They have to be aligned. They have to be correct. So that's back to what the CEO, what the firm needs to know about the structure. Uh, The other half, of course, is what you need to know about your strategy going forward. I loved the fact that Bob Crandall started his discussion on um, the response to deregulation by saying he didn't know the first thing about it. He was going to forget – everything he knew about running a regulated airline and figure out together with the rest of the company what he should do. Creating a forgetting organization is not easy. and It's very rare that you're handed something as profoundly attention-getting as total deregulation. Uh, The insurance industry probably, again, is an example I like because – when I was working for the, uh, a team reporting to the board, we had to drop all of, the, all of the outdated ideas. And I remember being told they were going to focus on cutting cost and they were going to get rid of every bit of data that they no longer used. And I was terrified because insurance is a data-intensive industry. And I couldn't get them to understand what was wrong with what they were doing. And what I finally had to do was to say, what are the things that everybody else knows that I don't? What are the things that, that, from the most junior agent to your chairman, what does everyone know that I don't? And the response was, insurance will always require an agent. Agents are stupid, therefore products have to be simple, which basically means you can't change product or distribution, both of which are nonsense. Uh, This was, of course, long before the gecko, which is not theirs. But the idea that you can't change product and you can't change distribution was totally ingrained. And first you have to get that stated, you have to get it out on the table, and then you have to design mechanisms to forget it. It, it's It's a really disruptive process. It's really not a good idea to do it entirely within the firm or within firm uh, leaders because they're going to be spectacularly unpopular by the time you get done. So the idea is to create the forgetting organization with an individual whose contribution you can then forget later. But do it by finding the things that everyone knows can't be changed and then seeing what happened if they were changed anyway. Uh, one of the examples I use, a picture of my daughter uh, putting, and it's an easy putt. The shadow is, it's level, and you can put the da- down the, the shadow with a flagstick. It's an easy putt. And I said, now imagine gravity is rotated 30 degrees to the left, and everybody knows but you. Where does your putt end up? So understanding which constraints are no longer real is the hardest part of creating a forgetting organization. Um, One final thing. Can
1: you give us an example of a company that didn't handle digital transformation so
0: well? Yes. In in fact, uh, the most obvious example that comes to mind today is Volkswagen. So if Volkswagen were communicating in traditional ways with things that left a traditional audit trail, No one could have gotten away with with the diesel scandal for as many years as they've had. The guys in in research obviously couldn't develop the diesel that Volkswagen needed. The guys in marketing knew that they had been promised uh, a certain number of diesels in exchange for their selling a certain number of diesels. They weren't going to be able to do it. Somehow the guys in U.S. Volkswagen, the guys in central research, the guys in manufacturing, the guys in software installation, all coordinated enough – and I'm, I'm believing Winter Korn when he said the board didn't know. But there's a massive amount of interaction that was handled by an invisible social network that knew what their own objectives were and – They were going to meet their objectives regardless of what it did to Volkswagen, shareholders, or the drivers of their cars. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.